Welcome to the 24-hour conference on global organised crime podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime took place online in November 2020 and was organised by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Hundreds of academics, researchers, journalists and others from around the world gathered together to present and discuss the latest research in organised crime. We've selected just 14 of them for this podcast series. But I would encourage you to head over to the website oc24.globalinitiative.net where you can find recordings of other sessions. In this episode, you'll hear the session Recovering Dirty Secret Money. Thank you for joining this um, session today with us. We have four wonderful um, practitioners and hopefully um, one of them, Mr. Tim Connolly, will be joining us shortly. Um, we have Jonathan Benton of Intelligence Sanctuary, and we have Richard Gold of Illicit Finance Consulting, and we have Alan Johnstone, who now works for the Financial Intelligence Division of um, the Jamaica Constabulary Force, or it's at least um, attached to that in some way, Alan, isn't it? Um, so we will be talking today about dirty secret money, and by that our practitioners will be sort of looking at and talking about policy-oriented um, efforts to recover dirty money from dirty places and looking at secrecy jurisdictions as well as the recovery of assets at different levels. So thinking of international policies to recover illicit wealth and how this transposes down um, to the national level. So the national level in terms of a variation of countries. For example, Alan will be um, briefly talking about his experience in Jamaica. Now, very aware that we have one hour for this um, session, as well as questions at the end. Um, I have been instructed um, that the speakers will be talking for about five minutes each, okay, between five and ten minutes each. Um, Hello, Peter Emeka. Hi, nice, nice to join us. Thank you. Um, so it would be really great if you could sort of listen and perhaps as our speakers are going through their little chats, their talks, um, jot down some questions to ask them um, for the end of the session. I'm, I'm sure that you're going to really enjoy what they have to say. Um, so it's up to you guys, who whoever wants to go first. I think we said it was John. I think that probably makes sense, Mary, because I'm yeah. going to try and give a sort of um, an overview of the, as we see the situation and some of the challenges, and then that will fit segue into Richard and Alan's. Yeah. So, shall I kick off? Yes, please. All right. I press my timer. Seven minutes. I've gone for. Um, right. I'm going to try and do. I'm going to try and give you um, examples through five sort of analogies, really, and it'll all become relevant at the end. It'll either work or it won't work. Um, but I'm going to cover, first thing is the washing basket completely full of their dirty pants everywhere and socks. You'll understand why. <laughs> Next, 
Washing machine, someone has it, I'm double washing, it won't turn off. Don't worry, the engineer's here to fix it and we'll keep it going. And are we ever going to get clean clothes? And then the, the final bit I'll um, surprise you with. So what, what, why am I talking about washing machines? Because I'm talking about money laundering and dirty money, aren't I? And the, the amount that's moving around. And we, and I think, first of all, is, it, is the dirty washing all over the place? Is the dirty money everywhere? And I think this is an interesting area to look at to then go down into the policy and try and work out whether actually we've got the solutions right. You know, I've been part of that enforcement effort for many, many, many years and have led, you know, some of our biggest corruption cases from the UK. Um, so I, I can say firsthand whether some of it works and I can be frank now as well, because I'm no longer in that environment and say well, what doesn't work and I will be frank. So we often hear of sort of two to three trillion being quoted as that moving around the world in dirty money. And in fact, our own National Crime Agency here in the UK, and I apologise for being rather UK centric, but it, but, but um, I've recently published um, figures to say there's 100 billion just in the UK in illicit money moving around. Now, I think we all have to take those figures with a pinch of salt because actually we really don't know how much dirty yeah. money is. And um, uh, even, even if we were to look at the COVID situation we're in now, um, if the, the, the UK government's done, like many governments, has handed out lots of money to keep businesses going, but there's concern about crime and corruption in all of that. And uh, even if uh, the uh, part of it's not repaid, which is being recently published by our Office of Business, um, uh, our OBR, they're talking about it could add another 25% onto the amount of, you know, sort of money that's moving, dirty money that's moving around the UK. So it's it's very, very difficult to sort of pin a, I think, even in academic terms, to pin a, an accurate sort of figure as to what's out there. So what do we do? The, the washing machine's kind of on double washing, it won't stop. And what do I mean by that? You know, we, we have a challenge now, and I think in policy and even in um, the commercial sector where I find myself now, um, in really trying to sort out some of this legacy stuff that the money does just keep going round and round and round. I, I think a really good example is, um, is to look at, some of you may be familiar with a company called Sibnift. Sibnift um, was part of the post-communism collapse gold rush it was in the petrochemical sector. It was bought out by Rosneft for a significant amount of money. And that money was then invested in a very famous London football club uh, called Chelsea Football Club. Um, so, you know, was the startup fund ever dirty? It's been lit litigated over numerous times. Um, is that money all now clean? Do we still count it as dirty money or not? Um, and and that, that sort of, that, that, perpetual challenge just goes on and on and on with with many other cases and we see it um we see it in 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 cases concerning sort of west africa in in historic corruption cases um where money you know has now been handed down to the next generation um and and there has to, I think there has to be a point that we, you know, the, the, the challenge is where do we draw the line and where do we say this is actually now being essentially cleaned and let's, let's, let's and, and actually it's impossible to prove it's dirty money. 
So how, how do we get this? How do we sort of try and clean it all up? Um, policy terms, I think there's been some fantastic uh, work led by a number of countries. I'm very pleased to see that Democrats are back in, in the US simply because the US were pivotal in driving forward some of the G7 changes in 2013, albeit they couldn't get through changes themselves in Delaware because of their federal system. But to try and tackle corruption, and part of that was the beneficial ownership and open registers, which is absolutely a critical, critical part of all of this. For big corruption cases, hiding money, the people that I deal with, they are still using daily secret jurisdictions. Mm. Um, we have, you know, that was 2013, 2023, I think BBI is going to finally get an open register. Um, whether it's fully open or not, we will see. Um, we obviously have sanctions and uh, both those that cause physical harm and those that uh, facilitate the movement of illicit money um, and uh, funds related to, to causing harm. The, those are those are part of the kind of big stick um, approach that are that are being successful to some extent but but I, I'm going to finish by trying to tie in the final bit you know we have some big ticket policy actions out there we have incredible enforcement efforts by very very brave um, NGOs investigators and many others who are trying hard but let's 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 be frank that is that is hitting one or two percent if if we are absolutely that's been very 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 generous I think of so finally I think my point is is the banks and I think they're the veins which all this recovering this dirty money runs through um, I have to give credit to um, a guy called Brad Brooks Rubin from Century, who I was privileged to work with a couple of years ago, um, who, who, said, who, who took the approach and said, we've got all this dirty money that's feeding the war in South Sudan. Why don't we, why don't we just close down the, the, the banking ability to move money to the people we don't want it to get to? There you go, there's my timer. And... Um, <laughs> and um, and and, 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 our, and and we did it. We went to Society Generale. We went to Standard Chartered. We went to another a number of banks, and we sat down with years and years and years worth of research, and they carefully integrated into their systems to make sure that they were they could not move any of that money, and and we started to strangle them because they couldn't access the funds that they needed. So I will I I do think that it requires effort from a number of yeah. areas. But, I, but I, I, I think the banks are really critical to solving this. Thank um, you, um, John. I think you've made a really good point there that when, when it comes to sort of that trick down, trickle down, sorry, of policy to combat money laundering and other financial crimes, that the banks have to play a much bigger role in terms of accountability and pushing forward um, international, regional and national policies. So you mentioned South, South Sudan, Societe Generale, and the push there for major banks to recognise actually 
that they're not just um, facilitators of moving money for everyday citizens like you and me, but they play a very big role in enabling dirty money to reach very poverty-stricken and fragile and conflict-affected settings. So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I can't remember who is next. I think it was Richard. So too. Yes. <laughs> Um, in which case I'll kick off and try and keep to the seven to ten minutes bit, the same as John didn't. Um, and then, um, right, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm going to take it from a slightly different angle to that that John did, um, where he's looking at the banks and saying they should be involved. What I'm going to try and present to you this morning um, or this evening, depending on where you're watching this from, um, is the view about why government itself is not playing its full role. So if we, if we look at international standards, and the obvious place to start for that is FATF, and whatever you think about the Financial Action Task Force, um, it has unquestionably raised the bar. There are questions about whether or not it's raised it sufficiently. Does it apply its own risk-based approach when it's looking at evaluations? Or is there a better way to produce a better set of outcomes well, those are three questions that would take a 24-hour conference on their own. So we'll, we'll just park those for a second. But what all the mutual evaluations have demonstrated, almost without exception, is that there's one major issue. And that's money laundering is a predicate offence on paper, but very few jurisdictions actually look at it as a predicate offence in reality. Yeah. So what I mean by that is that you will go to most of the evaluations and they will reference the scarcity of standalone money laundering cases by that for those that aren't familiar i'm talking about that is the only thing on the indictment or the charge sheet what you will find plenty of times is um it's paired up with another predicate offense that is is more widely understood like drugs trafficking bribery and corruption is another common one and in this day and age in particular modern slavery and human trafficking so you will often find a money laundering offence tacked on the end. So if you look at um, headlines, man charged with drugs and money laundering offences, when you actually look at the headlines, it's a man found with 100 kilos of cocaine and 30,000 US dollars, and they've bolted on the money laundering because obviously if they've got $30,000 and they're connected to 100 kilos of cocaine, that must have come from drugs trafficking, therefore it's money laundering. What you don't find in the evaluations is the standalones. And when you're talking about a standalone case involving a legal entity, well, to be frank, the planet's gone undergone sort of a, a kind of an extinction level event when it comes to that, because those are virtually non-existent around the globe. There is no company that's charged with an offence for money laundering, and that's the only thing it's charged for. And that's pretty common through all the evaluations. Um, so the international standards, the conventions and agreements aren't really producing something that's needed on the front line. Um, one thing that is common is practitioners and academics all share the same view that removing profit, blocking illicit money flows and dealing or making it more risky to deal with the proceeds of crime, particularly for organised crime and transnational crime, is the key to combating some of this serious criminality. Um, there's clear evidence that those involved in organised crime and transnational crime engage professional money launderers. Um, doing large-scale money laundering is in itself a skill for the criminal community who don't involve themselves in the drugs trafficking. They don't involve themselves in firearms trafficking or the bribery and corruption. 
their only nexus is money laundering and it's a skilled set of um, uh, attributes that they bring to it. And we haven't got anything that tackles that because law enforcement are all focused by government strategy, government policies on producing headlines for the publicity machine. Um, that I think is on the basis that most governments recognize that their population understands the harm a drugs trafficker does. You ask most people on the street, what harm does a money launderer do? And you'll get a blank face. So there's no, no need for the government to push that agenda in order to get reelected. So what we need to do um, is, is push a different way of looking at things. And I'll give you an, an example in, in practical terms. Um, there's a thing called Encroach Act, which has recently been taken down in Europe. Big multinational law enforcement operation for uh, an organization that was supplying PGP, which is pretty good, in, uh, pretty good privacy equipment, to organized networks who were using that to conceal communication between different organized crime groups to launder money, move drugs, move firearms, all sorts of stuff. In the UK alone, round figures, 750 arrests and 65 million pound in uh, money seized. Excellent result, pat on the back to everyone involved. Good, I like it. However, that's a drop in the ocean for transnational crime because the vast majority of that 65 million and the 750 arrests uh, were all street level. No organized money launderers there, um, other than dealing with a whole vault full of cash, which in the big scheme of things is a drop in the ocean, as I said. Right. Really good headlines, but it didn't actually support anything long term. If you look at international financial centers, um, many of those are offshore centers. And before anyone starts, we're not just talking about little island states. Right? Lots of jurisdictions provide advantages, and uh, many of those are far from being, geographically speaking, offshore. Right? So if you look at um, the Cayman Islands, which I accept is one of those little offshore islands, right? um, around 80% of the globe's mutual funds are registered on the Cayman Islands. Right? Now, we all accept that the operational decision-making, the management, the investment decisions, and everything else like that is taken predominantly elsewhere, New York, London, to name but two. Right? And what's in the Cayman Islands is an accountant with a brass plaque and they do nothing but actually file the returns. Right? Those organizations rarely submit SARS, if ever. And that's around the world. That's not just the UK or the US. There are other, other locations as well. And even if they did submit a suspicious activity report, those intelligence officers and those law enforcement officers who are asked to subsequently investigate very rarely understand what a bear market is or what a bull market is. And when it comes to things like ETFs or CDS, you might as well be speaking double Dutch to use the English term. Right? There's no capacity or capability in the Cayman Islands to root out the bad apples. Right? Um, about 50% of their GDP relies on the financial sector. Right? So why would they do that anyway? Right? But moving on, even when the operational decision making is taken in a jurisdiction that should have the capability and capacity to do it, like London, the supervision of mutual funds, hedge funds is lacking and they don't look at um, the derivation of the investments. And that goes to the um, UK, the US and China. They've all got the same problem, the same issue. So if you look at the scale of it, of the regulated funds, please note I use the word regulated, not registered. Right? 
$7 trillion in Cayman is, is assets under management there. The way that the Caymans regulates and registers, they don't know the true amount because the registered funds don't give across the assets they're actually managing. You take the globally um, bounced around figure of 2% of GDP, which I have issues with myself, but let's just call it 2% to begin with. 2% of $7 trillion is a staggering amount of money, right? and nobody's doing anything about it. National governments need to set down key performance indicators for transnational professional money laundering networks, and they need to be asking law enforcement and the prosecutors why those challenges are not being met. Um, they're doing very little to assist transnational support of standards and expectations and agreements. It's all about public-facing local crime. I can tell you two of the things that will come back right, if um, that challenge is put down. First is, is remuneration, the difference between the public sector and the private sector on the skill set that's required. That's a big challenge. Right? However, my thought is that there will always be a cadre of individuals that will be willing to serve if they've got the skills and are given the skills to do it. Right? The second thing is those skills and the training. Training takes time and money and it takes a long time to put that particular training set into practice. So if you look at, for example, the OECD bribery and corruption average investigation time is seven years. I see no reason why that would be any shorter for a complex international money laundering case involving mutual funds and that type of investment activity. So governments need to assist in not only giving the training for that, but also devising policies about data sharing, addressing the dichotomy between the OECD taxation exchange of information and the FATF exchange of information, because they're, they're mutually disagreeing with one another, and also close loopholes, such as the one that John referred to about beneficial ownership. So it becomes an international standard that you cannot register a legal entity in your jurisdiction if it doesn't operate from that jurisdiction and has no bank account in that jurisdiction, that would be an inter should be an international standard to shut that sort of loophole. Um, so all in all, my point would be that governments around the world need to step back from the self-interest, start accepting that they should be laying down preparation for um, work and activity that they may not reap the benefits of, because it may actually um, come to fruition several years after that government has left office, and it may actually benefit an entirely different government, which may even be of a different political persuasion. So until the self-interest starts to be um, eradicated, I think we're going to have a long time to solve this problem. And after that, I would hand back to Mary, but I think she's gone. No, Hello. no, no, sorry. Um, it, yeah, you all sort of went from me. Um, Richard, thank you. That was so phenomenally interesting. I find your um, view that money laundering is just viewed as this bolt-on offence and that it should be used always as a predicate crime of its own where possible. Um, perhaps that's the sort of push that international governments and law enforcement agencies really need to go with um, in terms of it to be recognised as a crime in its own right, if you like, on it as a sole 
um, existing crime rather than attached to something, like you said. Um, you also mentioned that the criminal community has very specific skills and they exist in the silo in terms of money laundering on their own. Um, so I would, I think that you're referring there to sort of white collar enablers. Um, we're talking about accountants, bankers, lawyers, hedge fund managers, etc. And so I think you sort of encompass that thing there. You said, you know, they're not the drug traffickers, they're not the um, human traffickers, they're not the guys producing the methamphetamine in a lab in China. Um, they're a completely different, highly skilled subset of individuals and professionals who enable money laundering to go on, not just in little islands, as you said, but in the Vatican City, in Delaware, and we could go on. I really was interested in that, and I could see how your um, session fused with John's in terms of not enough is being done, and jurisdictions need to implement um, greater um, force if you like to crack down on big banks and the white collar enablers within these um thank you so we'll do questions afterwards i'm aware of the time for some people um alan would you like to start your talk for us now yes i would thank you very much um can i just very make clear from the outset i'm speaking a personal capacity and my views don't reflect the Jamaican or UK governments both of whom i work for so i need to put that caveat in okay so so far we've looked at this from an international, well, what I want to do now is actually drill down and start looking at a more local and regional perspective. And, and especially, although I'm based in Jamaica, looking at it, in fact, from the CARICOM and the small island developing states. Quite often when I start these presentations, I talk about Jamaica's murder rate because it really does affect us. We have a, a murder rate in 2017, the 1647. If the UK had a comparable rate, Instead of 726, it would have a murder rate of 35,600. It would have a murder rate of 700. The reason I say that is because do we think the UK would be so preoccupied with FATF and all of this if it had such a high murder rate? And my answer to that, I'll answer my own question, is no, it wouldn't. Jamaica is in that problem, but Jamaica is a SIDS. It's a small island developing state, and it's not in a position to reject that. It has to play its part in the international community. But it's an impoverished nation. Our debt to GDP debt ratio is 96%. It was only five years ago, 147%. We've got a lot of problems within Jamaica and SIDS widely in the problems that we face. The economy has taken a dive because of COVID. The tourist industry has gone. We've also seen the murder rate. We're now experiencing environmental factors. We've recently had rain, etc. Roads have collapsed. It might not seem a big deal, but to Jamaica, from a small budget, we now have to rebuild main thoroughfares. But that has to come out of the same pot because we've only got finite resources. And like all cities, with small countries. So what we then actually look at is where, where do we find ourselves with Jamaica? Well, we're a small country, we've got limited resources, but we bear the scars of the, lo the colonial past and the legacy. And we find that genocide, slavery, plantation ownership, all of this has left a legacy in Jamaica, which affects the nature and organized crime here. Therefore, what I'm saying right from the outset, what happens here is quite often different in the global south to what happens in the global north. And this is a distinction I want to make. 
what we find is actually that we're burdened with debt out here and we're not unusual with that in SIDS. So it affects the measures that we can actually take. And we need, even to fill our functions as sovereign government, we have to rely on international donors. Well, when you rely on international donors, it comes with a price. We all know there's nothing free in life. So we are grateful to our international donors for the assistance they receive. We receive from them, but it comes at a cost. And, and as been pointed out by Amanda Stein, you know, we become economically dependent and vulnerable to external pressures. We have then to start to meet them. What I want to concentrate on today, because we've touched on, is FATF. And this is really where I want to. As, as we know, FATF has no sort of standing in, in law. It's an international body, but it, it, it's articulated by soft law. It's not covered by treaty, but it possesses a flexibility that, that you don't get with treaties. So it, it, it assists countries far more because there is that flexibility. Something can be promulgated through FATF in a way that you never could through treaties. It's no longer this mere ad hoc group, but it's actually something which, despite them only being recommendations, is actually able to impose these recommendations. And what we find is through recommendations, we've got the, the ultimate goal. If you don't play by the standards, it's if you don't play by the standards, then you have to, you will be penalised, etc. Yet what we find is we've got ourselves with a high um, GDP, a crumbling infrastructure, we're under-resourced, yes. and uh, we've got a failing judicial system. You know, people don't consider how crime is committed in a city like in Jamaica because of the demands, and, 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 and that's its famous. So it begs a, a question, how does complying with the on onerous conditions and requirements of FATF affect a country that's impoverished. I've seen firsthand what it actually costs for countries like Jamaica to actually comply with the MER, the response to the MER, the ICRG, the, um, the, FAT, you know, the FATF grey list. When we actually um, start to look at these lists, the, we, we, we look, you know, we, we still have the NCCT and we have things like that. If you take the ICRG, you've got countries like Yemen and Syria, who I would suggest have greater things to worry about in this moment in time than um, the shortcomings of um, their uh, beneficial ownership and their trust service of providers. Yet what we find of the 16 countries that are on the ICRG list, three are from the Caribbean It's 20%. When you look at the International Control Strategy Report, 13 of the 15 CARICOM countries are on there. 16% mm -hmm. of the countries on the INCSR list are from Jamaica, are from the SIDS in the Caribbean. When we actually look at the EU high-risk country list, we actually see that um, we have Barbados, Jamaica, and the Bahamas on the list. We also have Trinidad and Tobago on the list, even though it was removed from the ICRG list. And the point I want to make is there seems almost an unfairness, and that might seem a little weak, but there seems that 
what what's being portrayed is almost 20% of the threat, 20% of what's wrong with the world AML, etc. system is by a small group of SIDS because between 16 to 20% of us are on these different lists. When I looked at this, and I, I, if I was asked to name countries who possess threats, who possess significant harm, I would never have thought of Botswana and Uganda. But when you actually look at the ICRG list, they are there. When you look at the EU list, they are there. And the question that I need to ask, when we look at the whole global money and the way the AML, the CFT, the way all of this works, are we really saying that the Caribbean possesses such a threat to the global AML, CFT world? Are they really in that position? What we have to look is the, the efficacy of the, um, the, the, the money laundering model that, that was actually translated, what I'd say, from the global north to the global south. What, what it's, it's done is make the global, um, make countries in the Caribbean unduly focused on money laundering initiatives, despite what I would say is a, a questionable effectiveness. I would argue that it's actually a global narrative, a global north narrative imposed into Caribbean SIDS. And, and what we're actually finding is we've taken something that appears to work in the global north and actually transposed it into the global south. With an awareness that actually the way that money is laundered in countries such as this, the sums involved aren't as great. The jurisdictions, the way things operate, will not allow the system to operate in the way that it does in Jamaica. But as the point we've made earlier, it hasn't stopped that we have to adopt this system. FATF in the mutual evaluations talk about this whole idea. We're not doing enough standalone money laundering charges. We were commented adversely on our MER. So were other SIDs. And when I've looked around the world, other countries are affected by that. But what we have to look is just exactly how effective have the 40 recommendations been? How effective have they been as a policy success? If the purpose of it is to deprive largely criminals of the the benefits of the crime, it's hardly been an unmitigated success. So what we have to do is start asking, are we actually employing the correct model across? Because what we're adopting is this one size fits all. And I'm not actually sure is that what we're doing is actually achieving the objects of it. I'm aware anecdotally that there are countries within the Caribbean SIDS who have introduced legislation not because it's the requirement of that country, but in fact, because they believe it will meet the requirements of FATF. Not because they need it. Within Jamaica, we've introduced legislation to deal with POCA, to deal with TPA, yet we still use the Larceny Act to tackle fraud and theft. Our Larceny Act was created in 1942. It's based on the 1916 UK Larceny Act. In other words, Archduke Ferdinand was probably still alive when our legislation to tackle fraud 20 years in the 20th century was being composed. So where does this take me? It all needs me to take the view that what's happened with FATF and the whole system is we've become more 
obsessed with our internal structures. It almost seems that we're more interested in finding banks. 2018, 4.1 billion for ML, AML breaches. 2019, 8.1 million. We're very good at doing that. We're very good at naming and shaming countries. But if we actually look at the figures, the figures for conviction and confiscation rates are abysmally low, down to the set of 0.01% and things like this. In other words, it, it fulfills all of this, seems to be fulfilling its own criteria, but it's not meeting the greater needs. But the problem is that it is imposed on cities, it is imposed on the likes of Jamaica. We have to comply with this regime. And the question I would put is, do we now need to start looking? I'm not anti FATF. I'm not anti the whole concept of it. But what I do say is from the position of the global south, we have a system. Is this the right system? Do we need now to go back to revisit this whole idea of one system fits all and, in fact, step back and come up with something slightly more nuanced, something slightly more thoughtful that actually reflects everybody's demands rather than that of a privileged few. And I think this is where we need to come back. We need to stop back and start looking at the wider picture, something that's more inclusive and reflects the demands of both the global South and the global North. And that's, uh, that's my presentation, thanks. Great, thank you. Um, sorry, that was a really inter interesting presentation in terms of your viewpoint coming from um, a country which is considered a small island developing state by the United Nations. And, um, and I think it's reflective of uh, the, definitely the opinions that I hold, which is the Financial Action Task Force has a role as a soft law normaking body. It's the global standard setter for anti-money laundering legislation, and it is implemented um, international laws and regional laws. And it is also um, backed by the United Nations conventions, which promote it within their own um, legislation in the hard law. And I think what you, you sort of touched upon imperialistic sentiment and um, imperialistic sentiment, yes, and sort of colonial sentiment that's still left over and um, how countries are sort of demonised by the Financial Action Task Force, especially when we see the grey list as a naming and shaming document, which can um, force countries to comply with something which isn't actually um, hard law. And I think touching upon, you know, I teach students from Pakistan and one of the things they say is that in the rural areas of Pakistan, uh, where informal remittance systems are so, are a lifeline, then these countries are not going to be terribly um, concerned about implementing the FATF and I know there are issues obviously with terrorist, terrorist financing but many of these countries like John said just do not have the infrastructure nor the huge budgets to comply with the Financial Action Task Force and maybe it's just a matter of Great Britain's better at form filling to meet those <laughs> to meet that standard. Um, what are your thoughts other panellists on this? I, I know the effort that, that the UK put in from everyone from policymakers through to practitioners, and it was it was a giant operation to get that done. And I just don't see a jurisdiction such as Jamaica having the resources to throw at the issue. And I, I do think that there are 
legitimate questions that can be asked of certain jurisdictions who quite clearly do a tick box when it comes to the Financial Action Task Force standards and those that actually produce results. And at the end of the day, regardless of whether it's soft laws or standards, etc., the whole objective is to stop, so far as anyone can, money laundering and terrorist financing. Um, we mustn't forget that FATF is not just about money laundering, it's terrorist financing and um, proliferation financing as well. So there, there's a number of very important issues there, but it is about the, the level of resources. So I think Alan is, is quite right that there needs to be something um, of a reconsideration. But, but I, I would challenge, uh, I'll be slightly pugnacious on this, Mary, um, as I can be, that I... That, um, Whilst I completely agree with Alan's position, it's like it's soft law. It's like uh, international treaties and, and uh, international law. Compliance with it is very, very different. Um, it's very, very different for countries like the US, the UK, and other you know developed Western countries versus much smaller states that may, may maybe don't have the um, the financial capability or even the legal framework necessarily to adopt things like when you're embedding in your national things, laws, things like UNCA. So when we get to FATF, it's really difficult, but it's the one stick that actually works at the moment, I think. And I would suggest that actually um, it's, it, 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 yes, all of these things need fixing and, and need changing and need constant review and, and it may be, and I can see, I've seen it in another country. I don't want to name it because it's a client country that I'm working with, but it's very similar, it's similar similar to Jamaica, similar problems. And they really struggled to get off the grey list, really, really struggled to get off the grey list. It cost a huge amount of money. But um, but the, the other area that FATF is really important, and I think people like John Cusack articulate this really well, is... Um, it's actually listened to by the by the commercial sector as well. They look at it, they embed it in their internal policies. They they try the best. Try many try to follow it. So therefore, it, it has a it has a more critical role beyond national you know body beyond getting countries to get there you know to 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 to, to follow a, a set of standards. But I, but I absolutely accept that the, the, that you're trying to get one pair of clothes. And everybody's got to wear the same shirt, jacket and skirt to make it gender, you know. Can, can I quickly come back in? Is it all right? Just very quickly, Mary, I promise. And yeah. then we'll, we'll, uh, sorry, the, the point. Okay, no the, problem. Oh, sorry. I, I just know that everybody's got the point. The point I'm making is that I don't dispute the need for FATF. I don't dispute that there's a need for all this. What I'm saying is it appears when you are in the global south, a very privileged Global North Club playing, playing by its rules using a model that doesn't necessarily actually apply in the Global South where things are different. Look at a lot of the countries on there. They're former colonies. They, they bear the scars of all that legacy and things happen differently here. I'm not saying we shouldn't have it. What I'm saying is Jamaica, after the third round of mutual evaluation in 2005, came off in 2014, nine years later. Mm -hmm. Within two years, it was back on the naughty step again. We'll come off in something like 2023. We'll probably have another year off. We'll be on the fifth round of mutual evaluations. 
and undoubtedly we'll go back on the naughty stuff again. And all we do is spend our time doing this. And having been closely involved, I can tell you in a country where about 60% are posts are filled, so we're working 40% under strength, the amount of time, when I finish here today, I'm going to attend meetings to do with our ICRG and our national risk assessment, and that will be my day. And then this evening at home, I will be writing up our national risk assessment. It puts a massive amount of strain. I'm not saying no to FATF. I'm not saying for a two-track system. I want something more nuanced that reflects everybody's needs and not that. FATF is a, is a group of you know 37 countries in the global north. It needs to reflect more greatly the globe. Uh, and I think it's a really important point you're making there. And for anyone who isn't aware, um, the Financial Action Task Force was born at the Paris summit in 1989 and constructed by OECD and G7 countries. So it's very much Western centric in its formation. And in 1989, the purpose of the Financial Action Task Force, and I know this because I've been researching a lot and doing uh, going through Hansard reports, even Maggie Thatcher said the Financial Action Task Force will be there to combat money laundering from drug trafficking, which again goes back to what Richard was saying, that we still view money laundering as a bolt on crime to other predicate crimes. And very much FATF's um, creation was to do with getting rid of the profit in narcotic trafficking. So we very much saw those initial regulations crafted around confiscating the proceeds of crime from money laundering. And then after 9-11, we had nine extra recommendations added on. We saw a paradigm shift from drug trafficking to combating terrorist financing. Um, and though, and you know, we, it cannot be denied that the core countries which are part of the shaping of um, regulations under FATF are Western rich countries. And to some point, you know, we see smaller developing countries um, being demonized. And that was certainly the case post 9-11. Um, and it continues to be the case now with some countries. Now, um, I know sort of John and, and others might say it's the it's the only thing we've got at the moment and it works a little bit. But um, in reality, some of the issues that are prioritized by FATF are not the priorities of countries and the subcontinent, um, South America, Latin America, or um, um, the other developing countries, which we could, I'm sure, list all together. Um, and those priorities are different. They may be feeding your children or getting an education, or just managing to survive day to day. And so FATF regulations are not going to be the priority of law enforcement officers and policymakers. So if we look at Jamaica, you know, Alan and I, Alan and I have spoken about this many times, the priority is combating firearm trafficking, not worrying about whether Jamaica is compliant with the anti-terrorism recommendation within that soft law framework. I, I, Mary, I don't disagree. I, I, look, don't let me decry the issue of, of proliferation financing. It's an important issue. But you wouldn't believe the amount of time that we have spent on this issue in Jamaica recently. I'm not saying it's not important, but we have so many demands as a country. Yeah. Oh, we've only just taken our GDP debt ratio below 100%. And when I was talking about the environmental factors, 
it really is important. The environment now is starting to impact. We've had later rains here. We've got a reduced budget because of COVID, because we're reliant upon the tourism. We have a reduced budget. Everybody's getting cut back. Now we now suddenly from somewhere have to find the money to deal with all of this. And these are things that we have to factor in that the UK doesn't. And, and even if you are, if you're a bigger country, you have a stronger GDP, you can absorb these things. Jamaica's GDP is 15 million US dollars, billion US dollars. We cannot absorb that. Um, but we can't prioritise because if we prioritise, we're on every, we become an international pariah. Um, I just want to step in and ask John a question. John has done work in sort of conflict affected settings in Africa. What was their take, John, on the Financial Action Task Force and these anti-money laundering laws, certainly the soft laws? Well, in places like South Sudan. <laughs> I don't think the letter even arrived. <laughs> they, they are literally trying to stop their women and children from being raped and shot and, and, and parts of the government were. And so, so places like South Sudan, it doesn't even register, it, I think, frankly, and it didn't. But you've got a corrupt government led by President Keir there. So when you get a transition, go, I think Sudan will be an interesting example as we see it, um, as we see it on its journey um, to a... Uh, to, to its democratic journey, um, and I and I suspect in a decade you might start to see them in the position where Alan is. So it's a long. I think so. Yeah, you know, a long road. Um, can I just interject? Do we have Tim Connolly? He was our fourth panelist. Um, yes. Tim, are you there at all? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Oh, Tim. So sorry. Oh. We've got ten minutes. Crack on. No. no, no. <laughs> I'll be very quick. I'll be very quick. It's been very interesting. Well, we've got five minutes. So we're meant to speak for five know. minutes and then question. So okay. you take the floor. Well, it's very interesting hearing from my uh, colleagues and I use the word advisedly. Um, I think that's probably one of the problems is that we don't all see ourselves as colleagues in, uh, yeah. in this work. Um, and I should say at the beginning, these are my personal reflections and don't in any way reflect the opinions of <laughs> my employer. Um, so I need to be fairly careful. But uh, when, I, when I woke up at an ungodly hour this morning, I, I thought, what, what am I going to talk about? How, how do I get this across in five minutes? And for me, I, I've been in law enforcement since 1987 in criminal investigation. And I, I, I thought about how things have changed in those 32 years and, and what, why it is this, that despite all the legislation, Despite all the cooperation, all the training, uh, and all the vast amounts of money that we've put into uh, anti-money laundering, both in law enforcement and in the yeah. in financial industry, we're still not as effective as we might be. Seems to me that it's all about change. Mm. Um, first thing is profits. The way that criminal profits have generated has changed massively in uh, since 1987. Which, um, in, in those days, cash was king. And cash is still important, and cash is still important within jurisdictions, um, particularly when it comes to tobacco smuggling and, um, and drug stealing. Um, there's still a lot of cash generated. And in fact, there is, for some reason, a lot of cash being generated in the post-COVID era. But 
cash is now moved. Most of the most sophisticated criminals don't generate their, 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 their profits from cash. They generate it from tax fraud, from boiler room frauds, from uh, manipulating cryptocurrency uh, and from specialist money laundering. So that is something we've always struggled to catch up with. Um, and a, a second part of that is that communications have changed. And Richard quite rightly mentioned EncroChat. But that's a very significant part of where, why we fall behind in, in anti-money laundering efforts, is that uh, criminals can now communicate at the speed of light in mm. extremely sophisticated ways um, that are very difficult to monitor or, in, or indeed even to crack into in any way. And that communication affords them the opportunity to move value um, quickly, far more quickly than we can react. Thirdly, um, because of those two factors, um, actually tracking cash or funds or assets or value has become much more difficult and uh, it's a much more sophisticated process. Again, I agree with Richard, you know, that the, the amount of training that's required and the amount of knowledge that's required to hit the very highest levels of anti-money laundering work is now vast. And there are very few people who are, who are truly equipped to do that. Um, we have people who are specialists at assets and we have people who are specialists at, at uh, anti-money laundering and people who are specialised in accountancy. But really, you need people who know about all three, at least to a, to a certain extent. And that, that's all about time. And these big, sophisticated um, uh, criminal operations take a long time to investigate and bring to court. Ten years is not untypical. And I, I, I use a term, I don't know if, if, if it's ever been used in criminological circles, but I use it. I use this term investigation fatigue. And that, that's the sum of people getting promoted, people moving on, people retiring, who, are, who have the knowledge base on a particular case. We get reorganised on a regular basis. And when you add all that in together, you get this thing called investigation fatigue, which means that the, the knowledge, the deep knowledge on particular cases attenuates over a period of time. And that is a real, really difficult thing to combat. The fourth big difficulty is that on the occasions we do find the assets, um, it's actually very difficult to recover them because of transnationality, global world. Um, Organised criminals will now, uh, or they've always sought to remove themselves from the crime, keep distance themselves from the crime and distance the money from the crime. Well, it, it's a lot easier to distance the money, the funds, the assets, the value from the crime because you can get it abroad a lot more easily than you've ever been able to do it before. You don't need to pack a suitcase full of cash and, and, and take the risk of wandering out of Heathrow. You can just press a button. Um, and cryptocurrencies in particular um, are particularly easy to move money around. It's completely ethereal. It has no jurisdiction. And the big difference with cryptocurrency at the moment is you can actually make a lot of profit through your money laundering efforts. And Bitcoin in particular is very volatile. Um, and the, the, you know, there's a lot of money to be made through the money laundering. We always used to assume in the past 
that you'd lose about 10 to 20% of your value through a money laundering scheme. Well, not necessarily if you use cryptocurrency. Lastly, and, and this is the thing that, uh, thing that I, I think really drives um, sophisticated criminality. I, try, I tend to not use the term organized criminality. Let's, I, I say sophisticated criminality. Is that the profits are so large and the ability to recover assets is so poor that there's, there's no real disincentive to the criminals. I have no empirical, empirical data to support this assertion, but the rates of recidivism amongst the very sophisticated criminals that we tend to deal with are extremely high because the incentives are so high and the disincentives are so low. Um, one of the things in, in the United Kingdom is that uh, the most sophisticated criminals are white collar criminals who don't pose a threat to um, the general public in terms of um, uh, aggression or cri uh, criminality. They don't pose a threat in the prison estate. So they tend to pass through the prison estate very quickly. So you might be sentenced to an eight or 10 year prison sentence you'll only serve four or five, of which two-thirds might be served in open conditions. So, again, that all leads to this idea of criminal resilience. So what, what the, the, we're trying to do in, in, in the United Kingdom is attack both investigation fatigue, deal with investigation fatigue, and deal with criminal uh, resilience, by taking a much more holistic view of the of the of the criminality and in engaging not just law enforcement but all levels of law enforcement, including the prison service and probation service, but most importantly for me is the engagement with the financial industry. And absolutely key to that is for law enforcement and the financial industry, the anti-money laundering part of the financial industry, is to see themselves as part of the same organization we're all colleagues in it together um, there's a long way to go with that but um, we're making good strides your point about that the financial services sector the financial industry needs to come together echoes the points of the other panelists where there needs to be a much more holistic approach to combating financial crimes where you have where you have practitioners working with law enforcement and working with the industry. And I thought it was especially interesting what you said about um, investigation fatigue, a term I've never heard of before, um, but one to take on board going forward I, and sort of John back that up about this sort of fatigue and tiredness with these complex investigations. Yeah, I, th I think, yeah, it's, it's very true. And, and uh, some of the investigations that I'm looking at at the moment we're still working on are 20 years old and the, the, the obviously we're still trying to trace monies from 20 years ago is, is a very difficult thing to do but you can see through the pro progression of a particular case where individual case officers have moved yeah. on and a new lawyer or a new case officer or a new case manager has come in and had to pick up an extremely sophisticated complicated long-running case it's almost impossible um, and, and that's one of the things we have to deal with. Secretariat says we have 15 minutes. Wonderful. Please, please yeah. then, if everyone um, 
want to sort of contribute some questions now. It would be really helpful for us and the presenters, the panellists here, John, Tim, Alan and lovely Richard, if you could turn on um, your microphones, that would be brilliant. It's easier for us to hear the questions. Um, the typing is good, but if we can have some more inter interaction with mics turned on, that would be brilliant. Thank mm. you. Hello. So I'm, I'm from Ghana. Recently, there, there was a situation where uh, Ghana was blacklisted by the European Union with regards to money laundering. And uh, the, the, the government is trying to make some efforts. But what's happening is that on the, on the ground, there are no much effort that is done. Although we have the laws, it has not been, prom prom uh, been pushed. What, uh, from the practitioner point of view, what can the, 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 the what can be done in the Ghanaian context to address the issue where we have the, the laws by the banking sector, by the secretary and, and uh, secretaries and exchange commission, but I'm, I'm, for it to be implemented is very difficult. What can be done to, to, to address it? Okay, thank you. That's a brilliant question. And Carl, I'm going to direct that to John, who's got a lot of um, experience working uh, um, with asset recovery um, projects in Africa. Right. I'd, I'd very quickly, then, from a from an operational perspective, I'd say um, one of one of the key things, and Richard will know more than me on this because he's much more knowledgeable on the policy side of FATF. Um, but but the, the one of the key things that just always crops up is actually volume number, value and volume of cases that you're actually pushing through your system. So um, you know, we talked about money laundering. Uh, it is critical that it's used more. I, I think it's mad that it's not used more because I used to use it all the time. And it's a fantastically flexible piece of legislation that almost catches everything, certainly the, what, what we have in the UK and from what I've seen in other places. So, so I think from a practitioner perspective, it's about driving those successful cases through. I've done a lot of work in Ghana, Nigeria and surrounding countries and um, and just getting one or two of the bigger cases over the line, which I know you have done some, is is really going to send a very 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 strong message. Mary, can I can I just reiterate what John's just said? Of course, yeah, of course. In my experience, there are a lot of jurisdictions that believe they have to have huge numbers of examples of what they've done. Mm. Uh, in, in my experience as well, that the, the better impact is made by making sure you get a number of cases across the finishing line. There is no good having 60 cases under current investigation and nothing across the finishing line. I, I know of um, law enforcement agencies around the world can get a case to court that they believe is absolutely a slam dunk case. There, there is no possibility of doing that because once you get to the steps of the court it's a different ball game so you have to make sure that a number of cases just just a several doesn't need to be dozens of quality money laundering cases standalone if at all possible if it involves a corporate entity or a legal entity even better right um, that takes determination and it takes perseverance from the people that hold the policy string, because invariably those cases take time and they will take time away from publicity generating headlines because it's predominantly white collar. It's predominantly not off. It's not on the streets. 
and it is stuff that goes on behind closed doors and people only hear about it once you've got the conviction so it's determination and it's support by government and policy agencies to the frontline law enforcement agencies into delivering that objective so um so basically carl the panelists are saying that uganda um uganda's priority if it was to sort of secure finishing some cases and secure convictions and this is a, a good place to start with is that what you're saying that's the sort of thing that can be done to motivate and galvanize anti-financial crime efforts is to start with those big cases and pushing them over the line in part yes um I put one, one caveat to that particularly if you've got a jurisdiction that's just starting down this this journey down this road is that if you take the big case first um, I'd like to suggest you wouldn't, but with no disrespect to Ghana or any other jurisdiction, you're likely to fall flat on your face. Right? You've got to learn to walk before you can run. Right? Okay. So take some cases through a proper tasking and coordination session that actually identify some small challenges, make sure the law enforcement effort can tackle those challenges, make sure the prosecution effort mm -hmm. can tackle those challenges in the court environment, once you've got a success then, step up and, and, and enhance the size of this case, the scale of the case, and the, the jurisdictional impact of the case. But if you go straight for the big fish, you'll get eaten. <laughs> I'm going to sort of flick that question a little bit towards Tim. Tim Connolly, so our fourth pa panellist, we're not an emergent economy in the UK. We don't have an emergent legal infrastructure and law enforcement bodies. So the sort of comment that Richard and John said about you have to have some cases which finish productively and effectively with a positive outcome. Is that what people still want to go after in the UK or has or have we seen a, a shift in the way anti-money laundering is dealt with in Western and developed countries? Just, just very quickly, just say, look at unexplained wealth orders in the UK. They came in and, and perhaps, hindsight's a great thing, they should have tried it on the drug dealer first and proved that his Range Rover and his house and everything else were, 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 were the proceeds of his crime, not to try and take on a huge international corruption case. Can, sorry, can I just come in and say one thing, though? It's all very nice looking at it from the perspectives we're doing, but if you've got any experience quite often in a lot of these poorer countries, three to four years for something to find its way through the court is the norm. Um, so there are challenges, and, and this is part of the problem with it, that, that so much of asset recovery and whatever is predicated on the basis that you will get things through courts in a speedy manner. Um, and, and, and looking at certainly in my experience of Caribbean SIDS, Things find a long time to get through the courts, and, that, and I've no doubt to say in a lot of other places. So again, it just comes back, we've got to be careful of saying what works in the north will work in the south. It's not necessarily going to be the same. Um, and, and, and I just want to make that point. Okay, um, so I, I would, yes, I completely agree with you, Alan. I think the, from the other comments that we're getting in the comments bar, a lot of people are sort of agreeing that there needs to be a different approach and a different structure as we go towards vulnerable countries, especially those countries which are more vulnerable to 
illicit activities and therefore money laundering. But don't forget, many of those developing countries are not money laundering countries. I think John's already made that point. Um, but going back to John talking about unexplained wealth orders, um, because these were hailed as a solution, John, as an effective solution to a huge problem. So how can we in this, in this um, established economy of ours in this Western country, how can it go so wrong policy-wise? I've, I've got to jump off, but I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure it went, it went so wrong. I would... I think it's easy, it's very easy to when you step outside and you're looking from the other side to throw stones back over and criticise. And um, and actually, I, I do think it's been a colossal effort. Um, start going back to, you know, a, a decade or more in recognising that criminal finance is important. I was, a, I trained as, you know, uh, as a financial investigator uh, many, many years ago, I never, you know, I, I'm not anywhere like as to the standard of Alan and some of the people on the call who are very esteemed um, um, people in, the, in, the, in that profession. But the, it's, it's, it, I can't, I, I can't say it's gone wrong. I can just, all I can say is it's a piece of law that is very, very difficult, very difficult to introduce just from a legal perspective, because there is, there's an immediate assumption that the other side is guilty, which just doesn't fit with our English, with the jurisprudence mm. of our law, does it? Yeah. So, so it's a challenging piece of legislation from the very outset. Yeah, it goes against the grain that everyone is innocent until proven exactly. guilty, which exactly. is a fundamental principle of UK criminal law. Um, I'm aware you just said that you have to pop off. So, um, got, yeah. so thank you, John, for joining us today. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Can Take I, care. Bye. Can I just say as well, in, in respect of UWOs, they, they've become the latest, um, the latest toy in the toolbox that everybody should have. Certainly in the Caribbean, everybody says they should have a euro. Whereas actually, if you look at them, they've only got a value, certainly for SIDS and whatever, if you can do something about domestic peps and euros don't relate to domestic peps because turkeys don't vote for Christmas. So th there is no inherent value, despite what everybody says, you know, for most, mm -hmm. but everybody seems to become obsessed. We've got to have a euro. Jamaica, there's a massive talk. Trinidad have brought in euro. Everybody's talking about having euros, like they're going to be the panacea to the problems. They're only going to work if you can do something about domestic peps, and that relies on politicians, who, funny enough, are domestic peps, mm -hmm. taking them in. So, I, you know, I, and I agree with John as well. Constitutionally, it would be difficult for us, but we really do have to think about is this obsession with euros. Um, do, do any of the um, do any of the participants want to sort of throw some last minute questions at? Uh, Richard, Alan, and Tim, if he's still around. Hello. Uh, Hi, Henry. Hi, uh, thank you for a brilliant discussion. I've, I've really enjoyed these presentations. Um, I thought I might ask, uh, since Alan passed comment on the colonial legacy uh, that Jamaica has and other SIDS um, and countries in the global south and your reflections as well, Mary, on yeah. FATF and soft law being one of the Eurocentric mm. um, basis. As practitioners and people with experience in enforcement, um, 
what critical contribution can be added to that? Would would anyone be uh, happy to pass comment on it in a more sort of post-colonial perspective? I realise it's perhaps a little closer to social sciences than um, the panel is trained in and studied in, but I wonder if uh, perhaps we need to be looking more critically and self-reflective in practice and enforcement. So uh, I suppose it's not the most uh, poignant question, but uh, I thought I might ask anyway. So in a post-colonial environment, what do you guys think uh, anti-money laundering efforts can offer, I guess? Um, being conscious of the time limit on this one, yeah. I'll just say one very quick thing on that one. I think that the the biggest change that may be effective is to bring in FATF's own risk-based approach to its evaluations. It expects jurisdictions to do risk-based approaches. So you may have 2 million money laundering cases, but of those 2 million, which ones are the biggest risks? Um, and it expects jurisdictions to do that. But FATF at the moment doesn't actually look at the jurisdiction as a risk to the planet. So perhaps FATF need to stay, take a, a step backwards and start assessing what they're going to do on evaluations. And I think that that has the opportunity to cascade down into the law enforcement line in those jurisdictions that subsequently evaluated. Thank you, Richard. Um, thank you, all the lovely messages that are coming through. Thank you so much. And Richard, we know you were mentioned in those books, my darling. <laughs> some, some blatant self-promotion from those of us there. Just to reiterate, you can contact me at mary.young at uwe.ac.uk. Um, and I'm happy to take questions from anyone about further meetings or if you want to meet the guys from the panel in a different environment. We are all going to be at Cambridge Economic Crime Symposium next September. So you can meet these lovely guys again in person, but please do email me if you have any questions or if you want to take these conversations forward um, and perhaps chat with us in a, a, a less formal environment, although this isn't really formal at all. Um, but, you know, we'd love to hear your opinions um, sort of off camera. Um, so please do email us and I can put you in touch with the other guys as well. You are listening to Recovering Dirty Secret Money. If you'd like to get more information on this topic and the speakers, head over to the conference website, oc24.globalinitiative.net. There you can also find videos of most of the talks, including a number of discussions that are not part of this podcast series. This was the 24-hour conference on Global Organised Crime podcast. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening.